All right, this week we watched the movie Seven. We're going to dive into the deep end. Uh, Todd, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of a recap on Seven? All right, well, Seven was released in 1995, directed by David Fincher and written by Andrew Kevin Walker. Starring Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow, Brad Pitt, Kevin Spacey, and, of course, Lee Ermey. Um, a quick summary would be two detectives, a rookie and a veteran, hunt a serial killer who uses uh, the seven deadly sins as his motives. Great. Rotten Tomatoes and Tomato Meter gave it 83%, but the audience liked it 95%. Oh, Okay. Yeah, all right. Um, the budget was about thirty million. Some say thirty-three million. Um, but uh, released in September twenty-second, nineteen ninety-five, uh, the domestic gross uh, was one hundred million, and uh, the world gross is three hundred, three hundred and twenty. Wow! Million. Really? Wait, and how much? Time? That's box office. That is box office. That's not even video wow, rentals or that's, nothing. Uh, Wow, yeah, I'm, I'm, that's surprising. I mean, there, yeah, it was it was a big deal. Um, we, it's been a few years, yeah, but yeah, I still think it has has held it on to kind of the more morose kind of audience member. They like this kind of thing. <laughs> I'm not I'm not one of those people. Seven is actually quite painful for oh. me to watch uh, because I like Gwyneth Paltrow in this movie. Yeah, she's great because she's. She's not faking a British accent, so I kind of like her for that. <laughs> Does she do that now? <sighs> oh, she does it oh, a lot. Okay. Um, cool. Well, I didn't realize it did that well. I mean, I knew that it was. I knew Very that it was well. successful. Um, I didn't know that it was. Um, I didn't know that it was such a blockbuster. Uh, that kind of surprised me. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't totally surprise That's me. Huge. Like you mentioned, Seven. It, it's like one of the Fincher movies that people go to. It's an early Fincher movie. Um, it's still very, very true to Fincher, um, which is interesting. I still don't think it's quite as sophisticated as his other stuff, but I still love it, um, and mostly because of uh, some of the stuff we're going to talk about. But um, right. cool. Okay. Um, thanks for doing that recap. That was really good. Um, let's uh, let's dive into the deconstruction. So we're going to talk about structure. Mm, story structure. We're going to be uh, taking this uh, four-act uh, paradigm and kind of laying it over the script and the story and see if we can identify some of the, um, the machinery uh, in the script uh, and, and in the story and how it works. Um, so first of all, as we mentioned before uh, in our story bites, we always start with a dramatic question, okay? Um, we got an, a two-hour movie. Uh, lots of events, lots of scenes that are happening. So what we want to start doing is organizing the events uh, to recognize their dynamics and see how they work together to to be the story engine that it is. Uh, so the first thing is the dramatic question. And the dramatic question is always tied directly to the climax. The climax is the answer to the dramatic question. It's that dangling cause that builds all the tension and ties the whole story together. Okay. So what is the dramatic question for this, Todd? This is a will a protagonist achieve X? Will Morgan Freeman's character catch the seven deadly sins killer? <laughs> okay. Uh, um, I think that's almost correct. I think it's correct, but I think you can elaborate it just a little bit. And the key to this okay. is 
is that it's it's um, it's not just Morgan Freeman's character. It's can Morgan Freeman or will Morgan Freeman's character uh, and Brad Pitt's character. So will Somerset and Mills okay. catch the Somerset serial killer Mills. or stop the serial killer? Okay. Okay. Good. And so because of that, like their relationship and them working together is actually integral to the plot. Um, and, and then uh, then we oh, can yeah. jump straight to the climax. What is the climax? Do they do they stop the killer? No, they don't. It does the killer kill I mean, anymore? He achieves it. Yeah. I mean, the killer achieves his objective. Which is to complete the entire seven deadly sins. See, okay, then then we can elaborate on the dramatic question. Then the question becomes: Will Somerset and Mills stop the killer from killing seven victims? And then the answer is no. They don't. One of the one no, it's of it's a tragedy. Yeah, Mills becomes the agent of the murderer. He becomes the weapon for, that the murderer is wielding, throwing himself in there. Yeah, ultimately. Frank Danielle uh, spoke of if the dramatic question is answered no, then it would be definitively a tragedy, which this film is absolutely a tragedy. That is so interesting. Uh, I've never heard that. Yeah. um, Yes, I'm quite interested. (laughs) Yes, you are. Um, And handsome. (laughs) But yeah, no. and, And so this movie is to me a classic modern tragedy. Uh, and yeah. to be honest, very painful to watch. Yeah, I agree with you. I do agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That what's in, what, what's in the box scene is genuinely painful. What's in the box? I mean, it, it's my impression of Brad Pitt will probably get us into some sort of uh, copyright because <laughs> it's so convincing. So, I don't. Yeah, because it's so convincing. What's in the box? What's in the box? Hey, Somerset! Fucking box! It's so emotionally vulnerable, and yet uh, I buy it one hundred percent. Oh, a hundred percent! Like it's it's, it's uh, and you feel like tell me you wouldn't pull that trigger if you were no. in Mills' place. And uh, yeah, just it's it's almost too dark Absolutely. to even imagine, and you feel one hundred percent like fuck yes, I would pull the trigger, and yet that makes you part of the monster. It makes you a weapon in the hands of the monster. Yeah, what does that say about you know the human condition? I mean, I, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so from uh, so we've got the dramatic question and the climax. Then the next um, the next thing we want to identify is the impetus, and again, the impetus is the presentation of the problem that the dramatic question reconciles or, or reckons with. Uh, so what is the impetus in this? Uh, the impetus is... Remind me of what's happening. They see Okay, the, so the dramatic question is, the, will Mills and Somerset stop the killer from killing his seven victims? Oh, is it when he realizes that... Or realizes that the... the the killings are connected. Yes, exactly. That's exactly yes. right. Good. Yeah, that's right. So basically, he says this is the beginning. He says we've got gluttony, we've got greed, we got seven deadly sins. There's going to be five more. He says this is just the beginning. Yeah. I'm out. I can't do right. this. I'm only here for seven more days. Or was it seven? At that point, I think it's five more days. And he's like, I'm I'm going to yeah. be retiring. Give this to Mills. I'm out. I can't do this. Okay. Right. Good. Right. So that's that's the impetus, and that happens right about fifteen minutes in. 
So right on schedule. That's that's prototypical for uh, most um, tentpole movies. Is you have that fifteen minute impetus. The 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 actual dramatic question. Um, they don't really cross into the second uh, act until right around thirty seven minutes, which is a little bit later. Mm. Um, actually, I should ask you that. When when do we articulate the dramatic question? When 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 do they cross into the second act? I seem to remember there was a moment where you could literally feel the curtains close right? and then open back up yeah. again. And I don't remember when that was. Um, so the, this, the plot, the story, is all about these two detectives working together to solve, to, to stop this murderer, stop the serial killer. So was it, it was after the dinner that they had at his, at his, at Mill's house with his wife. And didn't she literally, like she like woke up with her head in frame. I think, wasn't that the beginning of the second act? Like, So uh, what we want to do is identify the moment that the dramatic question is presented. In other words, and it's presented uh-huh. when the characters start to take the steps to solve the problem. So it, it is the moment when Somerset comes over for dinner and then it's after dinner, they've had their nice social night, and they're sitting out on the couch, mm-hmm. and Somerset's giving them advice, saying, this is, this is what you need to look at. Because for the first time, they're working together. The, the whole first act, okay. Somerset and Mills, excuse me, Somerset and Mills are at opposite ends of the spectrum. They're, they're fighting, they're in conflict, they mistrust each other. One is, um, Brad Pitt is really aggressive, um, overbearing, overconfident, cocky, and uh, Somerset is uh, very cautious, very methodical, um, and they're, uh, Somerset doesn't want anything to do with it. Um, and Mills just he, wa- he right. wants to prove to everybody that he can do this job, and that's why he's constantly like touting his credentials and everything, and saying you know take me seriously. So the moment when they're working together is when those curtains close because they say, okay, these guys are now on the same page. They're going to work together. From this point on, it's both of them against the killer. Before that, they were off separately and they weren't working well together. It wasn't until they started working together that they actually started making the progress. Once we identify the impetus, um, we got the dramatic Mm -hmm. question, the climax, then we want to start tracking the emotional turns. And so the next thing we'll look for is the midpoint. Okay, what is the midpoint of the movie? The midpoint of the movie. It would have to be... Well, okay, now I had a theory about this because I remember him going and bribing a federal official. um, And I thought, wait a minute. Um, is that how he would normally attack a problem, which is to go outside of the rules of what he was doing? But then I remember what what else? Because because he they met with the uh, the FBI guy who wasn't really clear that he was FBI for a little while, and then he and then they basically got a hold of a list of people who were getting these books out of the library and then they went to so I'm thinking the midpoint is when they ran into the uh, the killer at the staircase right 
you remember when they he did that? They no. They were at. The I door. do. I do remember that. Okay, so the midpoint uh-huh. is. Let, let's just talk about the dynamics or the function of the midpoint. The midpoint okay. is often where the characters are having some success, or they think they're having success, getting closer to solving the mm-hmm. problem, getting closer to achieving yeah. the the results of the dramatic question, engaging the dramatic question. And then they hit the midpoint, and they think, all right, we've solved it, we've got this. And then the floor drops out from under them, and they realize it's way more complex than they ever could have expected. And this is a much bigger problem than they thought. And then they start going down the hill. Toward okay, it. now. And that's when we shift from Act 2 right. to Act 3. At the midpoint. Oh, okay. Never mind. Uh, okay, so it's when they actually find the place, and they're they're in the they're in the uh, the inner sanctum of Good. the killer. So they've actually found yeah. his sanctum. They actually found where he is. Yeah. And yet, this is when they're like, "We've got him. We we know where he lives. We we literally had a shootout, a chase scene. Uh, it was a really great set piece." Really tense, uh, yeah. and you're just like, "Oh, he's right there! He's right there! Get him! You're you're so close!" And then, um, and then he gets away. Like he almost kills Brad Pitt, and just by some like fucked up mercy, like allows him to live, which even fucks with uh, Mills's head even more. Um, when they're chasing down the alley, and then he uh, hits him on the head. He's on top of the truck, and he hits him on the head. Yeah, and he puts a gun yeah. to him, and then he just walks away. Which uh, you know, if Why I'm a, if I'm just a police, if I'm a police officer, if I'm a trained detective and someone's pointing a gun at me, I'm going to look at the face. I'm going to look at the person pointing yeah. the gun at me. But whatever. They, they needed it. That was a, that was a, a plot contrivance, but it, it worked. Anyway, it's the, and the, the exact moment where we hit the midpoint is when he says, we had him. He was the, he was a photographer in the stairwell because he sees the picture mm-hmm. of himself with Morgan Freeman, or sorry, Somerset, behind him. And that's, that's the right, moment yeah. where they're like, fuck, we were so close to having this, and he's gone. Mm-hmm. In fact, no fingerprints. We have no idea who this identity is. This is way bigger than we have the resources to handle. That right there is the midpoint. That's that's what shifts it. Okay. Um, so from the midpoint, we had him and, let, and we let him go. Once we identify the midpoint, then we want to go to the low point. Oh, sorry. I mean, the low point of this film. What is the low point? Is, so the low I point mean, is usually the moment where people have lost, the, the protagonist has lost all hope, and they're forced mm-hmm. to kind of reckon with themselves and say, I, "If I'm going to solve this problem, I need to change my ways." What am I? And then, and then from there, they, they once it's usually where the, the an arc is completed. And they're humble enough to say, I need to change my internal value system. And then a new path is presented to them and they find a new way to solve the problem. Right. Now, and Frank Danielle's paradigm, I remember them discussing that uh, it's where the protagonist has lost the will to fight. I like that. Um, I like that a lot. Yeah. And so they move from the low point, which is, all right, you've, you've beaten the crap out of me. What do I need to do now? Yeah. Um, and they're willing to accept whatever answer is correct. So, um, and my, I, I think personally the emotional low point on this, because here's the thing, it's, a, it's kind of a buddy movie, mm-hmm. and in a buddy movie, 
Usually the low point is the separation of the buns. You're exactly right. When we were doing Pineapple Express, yeah. uh, we had to do Pineapple Express. Todd was, uh, had been in the accident, so we couldn't make it to a couple episodes. But um, yeah, and Pineapple Express, yeah. the low point was when they split up. And um, you're right, in, in yeah. buddy cop movies, or in buddy movies, in relationship movies, the two main characters split up. That doesn't happen here. And and the, it does not happen here. I know well, that. Actually, I would suggest. Uh, there's, you can make an that argument the, that it does. Hold on. Go go ahead. Well, okay, okay. Because my belief is, and this, you, you know, this is the way I look at it. The the low point and the climax are the same thing. In like the in emotional. Seven? In seven. Okay. Like, Make a case for that. Um, the That's very point, unconventional. You almost never the, have the low point and the climax be the same thing. It is the worst freaking thing that ever happened to Mills. It's the worst thing that Somerset could imagine mm-hmm. is the loss of this angel, mm-hmm. the the wife. This Literally, when she's being shot on every level, she is... Uh, She's shot with this halo. She wears a lot of white. Yeah. I mean, literally. So um, when, you know, the what's in the box, when they realize what's in the box, and when Somerset's trying to go, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, he's going to make you the final. You're just um, playing into his I hands. I feel like that that's both. I just feel like that's both the climax and the low point at the same time. Because what does what does Brad Pitt do? He gives in to the shooting um, the wrath that the the killer wants him to give into. He wants to prove uh, Mills that he is just as human as the rest of us. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that's kind of my argument. Is it? Is just that? I, yeah, that's all. So what here's I the thing: uh, you would have to completely break from uh, convention, story structure, convention. To say mm-hmm. that the climax is the low point. Sure, but this isn't a this isn't a conventional movie. I mean, you got the I mean, you got I, the impetus right at fifteen minutes. You got the dramatic question a little sure. after 35, 37 minutes. You got the midpoint about halfway between the climax and the dramatic question. A lot of the convention it's following all the conventions. It's almost kind of a procedural. Would you? How much would okay. you bet? That, what are you willing to bet that you're right? That you're right. Uh, I got a hundred bucks on me. I, I, I'd, uh, I bet that. Okay. How about we just bet dinner? <laughs> okay. All right. Dinner. All right, dinner is on you if you're wrong. Okay. Okay. See, but I have to acknowledge that I'm wrong. That's a bad bet. Ooh, that's a bad bet. All right. It is a bad bet. Well, survey says, but. Hang on, this is your podcast, so I'm going to let you, you know. Okay, survey says. Survey says the low, po- the low point is the climax. You're absolutely correct. Nah. You're 100% true. Next dinner's on me. We'll, we'll go hit a Chinese buffet. So this is one of the things I love about this movie is that uh, Walker structured it in a very unconventional way. Um, he, he, he presented a structure that I haven't really seen in a film before where it's following kind of the conventional structure. You've got the midpoint right at kind of a, a typical moment, right around a, uh, an hour, 20 minutes. Um, and then all of a sudden, the killer just hands himself up. He just gives up. 
He hands himself over to the police. Mm-hmm. He puts himself in the hands of the detectives. And they never get to solve the murder. And then from there, it's almost like it's a completely new episode. It's a new movie. And he says, I've got this one request. And this is, let me see, this is a solid 145, 140. So this is a solid uh, 30 minutes, 30, almost, uh, 35 minutes where from the time that he gives himself up until the climax. This is its own episode. It's its own set piece. And they draw it out beautifully with really interesting tension. It totally breaks with the convention. Um, the detectives don't actually solve the crime. Um, and then, uh, so he, he structures it in such a way, like right at uh, uh, an hour 45, uh, he starts a new act that I call the final request. It's a very unconventional thing. Mm. And this is a great example of taking the structure and then breaking it to make it work for your story. He's speaking to his themes and that's what makes this that's what makes this story different from just like conventional are are they going to catch a serial killer they they turned it into its own story the detectives don't even solve the crime they're completely out of their depths this is a story where it's almost like walker identifies more with the serial killer than with the detectives um so in that moment the the final request is uh is when um with john doe turns himself in and and basically has his lawyer talk to him and he says, I'll, I'll confess to everything. I'll give you everything you want. I just have one request. We have to go out to this place uh, in the desert in Lancaster. Um, cool. <laughs> so uh, we get this. Um, uh, so we, we get a good overlook. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, from from the over the overall bones, we have the pretty much the 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 big ups and downs of the movie. And we also want to get the hook. What is the hook of the movie? Oh, man. Well, it has to be... Um, What's the opening image? Do you remember? Yeah, the opening image was the dead body, right? There was a dead body on the ground nope. in an apartment? Nope. Oh, no, there was... No. Sorry, man. It, it's been a minute. So, let's see. Um, the opening sequence, the opening shot is... Um, Somerset getting ready in the morning. That's He's over right. a sink. And he, uh, and he looks at a little chessboard. He looks at the chessboard yeah. and then walks past it as the as the um, uh, the focus racks focus to the chessboard and then cuts. So because I I tried pausing it to see if I could figure out what the configuration was just to see if there was like some sort of ah. secret metaphor in there. I I didn't find one, but I'm I'm curious. I might go revisit that. And then we just get a sequence of Somerset getting dressed uh, for his day at work, and we hear this couple arguing in the next apartment. And then it and then yeah. it cuts to the dead body, which is actually Andrew Kevin Walker. He played the dead body in in that scene in that ah, shot. That w- <laughs> Oh my gosh. I, I think that's so cool he did that. Ugh. I love that. Yeah, that's way cool. That's way cool. <laughs> um, yeah, so, and what that says, it, it says so much, you know, we always look at the hook as kind of the, the overture where you establish the themes and the tone. This is what the movie is talking about in miniature. It's a beautiful way of doing it. It's it's We're introduced to Somerset visually, cinematically. This is why Fincher is one of my favorite directors. I keep saying that because... I want to talk about the directors that I love. I want to talk about the writers and directors and storytellers that I love. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, and Fincher is just, he, he's, uh, he's always right. He's just always right with his storytelling. He, the choices he makes, 
uh, he's you always feel like you're in good hands and he always has so many layers anyway so that hook is a very understated story it's not a chase scene it's not something uh dramatic you do get to the dead body but it's after a kind of quiet moment with that you get to spend alone with somerset and it makes you feel intimate it makes you feel close to him and it makes you start to wonder about him um, he's just somebody that's completely removed from the world that he's inhabiting. And it's it's very, it's great. It's so simple and understated. And uh, and then we jump right into the character introductions. Um, so we intro Somerset and then we then we meet Mills at the, the crime scene. That's the overall structure. That's kind of the bones of it. And then from there we can start to fill in the different scenes. And, you know, I, we've mapped this out uh, based on the emotional arcs. So each scene kind of goes along that movement uh the the ups and downs uh the as we go and then we can also see where the act is you know we got act one right at the hook uh it ends at the dramatic question right about 37 minutes uh goes into act two act two ends at the midpoint right about um an hour and 20 minutes uh and then act four actually starts uh, act three is very short it's just a short sequence where they're just they're tr- uh, basically Somerset has decided I'm going to extend the time. I'm going to stick around a little longer so we can solve this, so we can end this. Um, and that's when we boom at, we're in the middle of act four and it's a completely new set piece. It's almost a new story in a way, same dramatic question, but a totally different strategy. And we, we do act breaks according to the strategies that the characters taking, the characters are taking to solve their problems. Okay. Now, I'm looking at your your chart here, and I see a lot of substrate yellow marks. Yes, I want to talk about uh, I want to talk about that more when we get into shot your plot hole. But yes, okay. you're exactly right. Notice that um, there is not a lot of highs or a lot of lows. Like right, when you're right at the line is right when you're kind of zen, right? And then when you're above the line, that's mm-hmm. you're happy. And then the further you are above the line, it's it's that that adulation or excitement. And the further you drop below the line, it's negativity, sadness, heartbreak, right? And mm-hmm. we're seeing kind of a steady line. If you look at other episodes like ET, you see these really big highs, really deep lows, right? Really dramatic. Um, this is this is a story where we're not getting a lot of emotional up and ups and downs. We're getting kind of a, a steady progressive. Um, it, it's almost more of a mood than it is uh, than it is an emotional roller coaster. Mm, um, which yeah. you know, I, I think there's something to be said about that. This is a neo noir, so they are pulling from the a lot of the noir characters, uh, character arcs, character insights. Um, it's very grim, so that's why they almost never yeah. really the closest they get to being above the line is the moment where they're kind of bonding in the living room. And we're like, oh, they're laughing. They're laughing at what a shitty place they're in. Um, but yeah, most of the time, it, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty macabre. It's pretty melancholical. Uh, but not it's not devastating until boom, right at the low point, right at the climax, it just drops. Um, which yeah. ties into we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that with plot hole uh, when shut your plot holes. Um, okay, so from there, once we get the structure down. We, this is all just plotting, which means it's all external. This is the character wants this, and this is how they go about it, right? And so we identify the obstacles. We understand the intentions. And the purpose of the obstacles is to reveal the character. And the way we reveal the character is this, um, this rubric, which is starting with the external, the conscious desire, and working our way inward through the unconscious drive to the core of uh, our weakness, 
uh, or our fallibility, the Achilles heel, that is reckoning or conflicting with the moral imperative. And then we use all of this to inform us of the central theme. And from this, we can derive the central theme. Okay. So the conscious desire and the dramatic question are pretty much the same thing. They're, they're, they're wedded together. Um, now, real quick, we need to identify the protagonist. This is a buddy cop movie. Does it have a single protagonist or is this a two-hander? I I mean, I think you're pretty... Com- I'm, I'm comfortable in saying that it's a buddy cop film, so it's a, I think they're going hand-in-hand together. Okay. If you had to choose one character, who would you choose? Uh, I, I would definitely say Somerset. Why? Um... I just think that he's making, well, I don't know. I mean, he, my, my meter for that is I'm looking at who's making the decisions. If you're making decisions and you're actively, and so Somerset, I, I think, um, I'm trying to think of specific decisions that he's making because, I mean, he does decide to stay on. He does, he decides, uh, to go to the policeman's library? Is there such a thing as a policeman's well, library? I want to talk about that when we okay. get to the plot. But yeah, it is. All right. That is the most well-guarded library ever. They have like a team of like six like, security Whoa. guards. Uh, <laughs> I love that scene. Have the Da Vinci Codex. Right? And it's like they. Right? <laughs> I love that. I love that moment where he's like, hey, how about this for some culture? And then he puts the boombox up and he starts playing, what was it, Pachelbel Cannon or something? Yeah, <laughs> it's it, whatever. I it's guess, a cinematic device. Sure, I'll take it. It's it works I, for the most. I, I kept thinking that Bruce Willis was going to show up in his fedora as Hudson Hawk. He's going to steal a book from the place or something. It's, <laughs> it, it was just kind of silly, you know. Yeah, that's but, good, you know. Yeah, but it, it, it's fine. Yeah, for some reason they're really going to miss Somerset. Yeah, no. We're going to miss you, Somerset. Okay. You've been spending lots of time in the library. Apparently, there, he spends guy. a lot of time in the library, and they miss him. <laughs> they miss watching him read books and making copies. The old bookworm. The old bookworm. <laughs> All right, um, we're gonna miss you. I agree with you about that. That anyway. the concept of agency. Um, is there a single scene that does not have Somerset in it? I mean. That's the thing, is that when we don't see Mills, we do see Somerset. We see Somerset meeting with the, the wife. Mm-hmm. We see Somerset um, making decisions early on in the story. Um, the opening scene is Somerset. Feel like it, yeah. It, yeah, the opening scene, he's framed. Literally, the, the director has framed him as the person to watch yeah. from, the, from the very beginning. And so, to a certain degree, I just kind of think... Yeah. yeah, I think Somerset is our, our our foray into this world. He is our protagonist. He's the one we follow. Um, it's so well written because Mills also has uh, a character arc and um, and development, but is mm-hmm. it is he is largely there to function as uh, uh, an instigator and, and someone who motivates uh, Somerset to go through the, the arc that he has as well. Um, so yeah, I would say William Somerset, Morgan Freeman's character, is the main character of Seven. He is the protagonist that we follow, and you know that said, we still have it's well written, so the characters are sophisticated, believable, palpable, um, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that. So, what is Somerset's conscious desire? 
for the story? What is the plot of the story? What does he want to accomplish? Well, I mean, his 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 conscious desire is definitely um, to find the killer to stop the killing. Yep, that's exactly right. To yeah. So yeah, so the conscious desire is the external objective that gets us to uh, question why they want this, and and the the what is the conscious desire? The why is the unconscious drive. Uh, and this is where normally you'd have to do a lot of detective work, but because of the way this uh-huh. is written, because this is a neo-noir and it has like some um, hard-boiled uh, dialogue and writing conventions, um, the unconscious drive is actually pretty accessible because they're articulating it. The, the characters are articulating their own unconscious drives. What would you say is right. uh, Somerset's unconscious drive? I'm trying to remember what he because they had a a, a really specific on the nose conversation mm-hmm. and I think it was during the third third act where he was. It's actually yeah. I I mean they, they have a couple well, conversations. They do have a couple conversations mm-hmm. where they're saying like this is how I see the world. This is my value system. This is what I see. You know. Um, yeah. So, but what it all kind of amounts to is conscious is conscious drive is ultimately that he's lost faith in his job. He doesn't think his job... He, he thinks he's collecting evidence, like a historian. Like, he's just... Okay. You know, he, he's like, my job isn't to, to do justice. My job isn't an instrument of justice. My job is, if anything, to record what is happening so that there's some record of it. Okay. He, he, oh, you know what? And that might be one of the reasons why Fincher thought it... It, it valuable to put him in the middle of a huge archive. We're going to get into that, but I, I think you're absolutely right. Okay. I, I think there that, that speaks to the allegorical value of who they are. In fact, this is a story where I think the allegory plays really close to the skin of the onion. Um, so we'll dive into that. So yeah. he's lost his faith uh, in his job. That's his unconscious drive. He wants to finish. He wants to retire because he doesn't think he's actually doing anything good. So, which right. means the Achilles heel is kind of a belief that uh, it's it's usually a belief that's inaccurate. It's a belief that might have been true under different circumstances, but because he's engaging a new moral sphere, he has to adapt to this new conflict, and which means he needs to update or resolve or grow beyond this Achilles heel. Uh, what would you say his Achilles heel is? Um. Is his, uh, I don't know, lack of faith in the system or his... I, I agree with that. Uh, actually, you can, and just make it a little more personal. I would say he no longer feels he is making a difference. He's lost faith in oh, his job. Okay. Yeah. And the okay. reason that unconscious drive is what it is, is because his Achilles heel is he's lost faith that he can personally make a difference. He doesn't think he's doing anything. Right. Right. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, which means that we, so we have this Achilles heel and uh, the Achilles, the relationship, the, the relationship between the conscious desire and the Achilles heel is that the conscious desire, if you want to achieve the conscious desire, you're going to have to reconcile that Achilles heel. And, uh, and the way you do that is by facing the moral imperative. Basically, the moral imperative is the bouncer... Um, Okay, say if story is... Oh, I like this metaphor. Hold on. Okay, if story is a club, right? Like, uh, and you want to get inside the club to meet that really hot guy, that really gorgeous girl. Um, 
And uh, so your conscious desire is to get inside the club. The moral imperative is the bouncer at the door that says, if you want to get in here, you're going to have to show me your Achilles heel. And if you still have this Achilles heel, that means you're underage and you're not getting in. That's what the moral imperative is. So you have to confront. So that means every single conflict you're facing is the bouncer coming and saying, you still have this Achilles heel. You are still underage. You're not getting in. No matter how many times you come to me, I'm going to turn you away. So you can't get inside that club until you've reconciled this Achilles heel. Okay. And that's that's the force that causes people to causes the characters to change when there is an arc present. Okay. Dude, I like that. Yeah, you're gonna have to add you're gonna have to add that to the poster. Right? Oh, that's great. Yeah, I like that. What would you say is Somerset's the moral imperative that Somerset is facing scene after scene after scene? Hmm. Why does he why has he lost faith in his job? Uh because he's been consistently proven correct. I mean, he's been consistently proven that that people are garbage and they're going to do whatever is advantageous for them in the situation. Okay, so the moral imperative, the thing that he has to get by is the fact that, like, um, so his unconscious drive, he's, he's, he's lost faith in his job. And the reason he's lost faith is because he no longer feels he can make a difference. He feels like the rules of being a police officer... Oh, are not allowing him to solve the crimes he needs, to stop the crimes, to make any effective change. So the moral imperative simply says, if you're going to solve this crime, if you want to become the detective that you know you're capable of being, you're going to have to break the rules to do good. Because that's ultimately every single scene where they make any kind of progress, it's because they're breaking the rules. It's they're going against the protocol. They're going against the policies. They're actually going, they're breaking the laws in order to enforce the laws. And actually in, in film noir, you're going to see that that is like a definitive characteristic of every film noir. Exactly. Which is that if you are staying with the rules, uh, you are not going to, you are not going to be successful. Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know if I would have gone that direction with it. The yeah, moral imperative. The moral imperative is often the but, most obscure thing. But you, once you identify the pattern from scene to scene, every single scene mm-hmm. is all about how they're breaking conventions, and it's only when they learn to break a convention that they make any progress. Two okay. detectives that don't want to work together. Tracy brings them together, and they say, "Oh, okay, this is how we're going to solve it." Um, and then they're like, well, let's go, let's go interrogate this, uh, the, the wife, let's go, uh, ask, let's go question the wife. And she's the one that is like, mm-hmm. oh, actually there is the paintings upside down. Um, let's go to the, let's get the library list. Let's kick the door open. Let's do, uh, let's push around the, the photographer. Um, so every single time, every single, uh, conflict that they're facing is basically them trying to respect the rules um, knowing that respecting the rules it is, is what's keeping them from solving the mystery mm. and from catching the killer man that's 
That's good stuff, man. <laughs> cool. So, no, I, you know, it's so once we once we identify the the moral imperative, uh, the moral imperative is simply the source of conflict in each scene. So then the question becomes: uh, once they've reckoned with it, once they've uh, once they've fought their way, and they finally get to the point where Brad Pitt shoots John Doe. What is the central theme? What is the lesson we take away from this story? That what is the the lesson the characters learn? Well, okay, so the the moral imperative. I mean, it's, the moral you know, imperative being. Go ahead. So I mean, part of it is that you know this is about sins. This is you know it's the seven deadly sins. Um, and so they're, they're playing with this idea that, you know, um, this is taking seriously the concept of sin, um, at least from their evangelical perspective. Like they're, they're saying that the killer is, uh, he's preaching. And then they said, no, it's, it's you know, it's attrition. They're, he's trying to punish people who, uh, who are only feeling guilty because they were caught. Um, which ties into ultimately the lesson they learn, the lesson that, that John Doe is trying to teach them is that our hubris blinds us from our own sins. That's what John Doe was. He's, he's like, I, I'm guilty of this sin. I'm guilty of, um, what's it called? Of wrath? No, of... he's guilty of uh, coveting. He's like, I'm, so um, oh, that's John right. Doe's that's guilty right. of coveting Mills's life. He wanted to be Mills. He wanted to have his wife as his own. Um, so, and that that was the whole uh, theme is that every single scene is, and ultimately that moral imperative in the Achilles heel shows that that's Somerset's own hubris. His hubris is he's willing to break the rules even though he knows it's wrong um, in order to solve the crime, in order to stop the killer. So he's rationalizing, justifying because there are lives at stake. And ultimately that hubris is what's leading him to make that sin. He's a corrupt cop. Right. By, by pure definition, he's a corrupt cop. Is he doing the right thing? I mean, he's definitely trying to. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's like the, the, the scene with, uh, with Mills when he shoots John Doe. Like, is that the right thing for him to shoot John Doe? I mean, I know I want him to. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So there's this thing that I've been uh, talking a lot about where um, I've, I've been noticing in, in the distinction between there's, there is the theme that we extrapolate from the inner conflict, which is, you know, the lesson the character mm-hmm. learns. And there is uh, uh, that that's kind of become like the, the proto theme, the theme that's the, the theme on its surface. And then there's a meta theme, which is nested embedded beneath the allegory which is really like uh, Hail Caesar is a really great example of that because on the surface, Hail Caesar is a a story about a capitalist bully who runs a studio beating the shit out of anybody who uh, disagrees with him. Um, And it presents it as if he's the hero. Yay. He beat the shit out of a star and now the star is going to go act and be faithful to the studio. But the takeaway isn't, you don't watch this and think, yay, isn't bullying great? You watch it and you think, this is talking about something bigger. This is talking about capitalism and, so, and communism and, and all those, um, those interesting conflicts. Um, it's not saying that Josh Brolin's character was correct um, 
in doing what he did. It's commenting on that. It's not an endorsement. It's a commentary. And that's, that's an important distinction sure. to make. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's too easy for clumsy um, condemning critics to say, well, that movie was just endorsing uh, um, using abuse and using bullying to get what you want. And people are going to watch that and think, oh, you know, this is the right thing to do. It, they're not saying that. They're saying this is a power dynamic that's actually happening. Okay. Um, so anyway, okay. In seven, we're seeing that this is a movie that is having two conversations at once. Uh, on the surface, it's about two professional detectives learning to work together in order to solve a crime and stop a very dangerous predator. And then you see all of these little clues and these little hints that there's, there's actually talking about something much bigger. And this gets us into allegory. Now, allegory is simply when you take a metaphor extended into a narrative and you recognize how those patterns relate to other patterns. Sometimes it can be an historical narrative. Uh, sometimes it can be a specific um, allegory for a political allegory, a religious allegory. It is simply when uh, a character's uh, choices overlap or match up with the patterns of other historical relationships. Okay, So uh, with Seven, we're actually seeing a pretty detailed, complex, layered uh, narrative that's that's right beneath the surface. And that's what I love about this shot here is because it's it's saying that they're traveling through this world. They're crossing into this this uh, just sullen, dry, dead place um, with with you can just see sevens everywhere. You're saying this basically this is a beautiful way of saying that there are just seven deadly sins everywhere. Um, and you're seeing all these sevens hidden in in all these um, uh, telephone poles. Are these telephone poles or energy poles? Electricity. These are yeah, they're electrical. Uh, uh, what are they called? Structures. Okay, so know. power part yeah. of the power grid. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so, uh, in order to kind of uh, start deconstructing what this is, what the allegory of the story is. Um, he, they actually give us a full clue. They're giving us the rubric in the story, um, and he literally gives us you gives us a list of books we can show for the reference. Um, and the and first he mentions the seven deadly sins, and then the list is Dante's Purgatory, the Canterbury Tales, uh, and the Parsons Tale specifically, and the Dictionary of Catholicism. Mm. And he hands that over to um, Mills, and then Mills gets the uh, gets the uh, catechism for dummies and purgatory for dummies and all that stuff um so i wanted to look at it and see uh what the relationship between these stories and seven uh, actually are um so canterbury tales uh it was written by chaucer jeffrey chaucer um this was uh what was it it was written in 1386 oh sorry it was written between 1386 uh, and 1400 um, and basically, it's a story about a pilgrim, a group of pilgrims that are heading down to uh, the Canterbury, and uh, they're on a pilgrimage, and uh, their host kind of gives them a competition and says, whoever tells the best story, um, I'll give you a free meal. And so, you know, each one starts to tell a story. And the last story is the parson. Now, everybody else was telling all these funny, goofy, interesting stories. Parson says, I'm not going to tell you a story. I'm going to... Um, uh, basically, he says he's going to preach. He's going to tell us. He's going to talk about the seven deadly sins. And um, even though the seven deadly sins aren't unique to Chaucer, 
Uh, it's one of the most uh, classically represented uh, articulations of the seven deadly sins. Um, and Chaucer is, you know, he's he's also one of the great uh, fathers of uh, l- the literary tradition for storytelling. Um, now, the Parson's Tale is the last tale in Canterbury Tales. And what's interesting is mm. he died before finishing it, which means he never did finish. We never find out who told the best story. We never find out who got the, the free meal. <laughs> I think it's a little ironic. Um but the Parson's Tale seems from the evidence of its prologue to have been the intended as the final tale of uh, the poetic cycle, the Canterbury Tale, the tale which is the longest of all the surviving contributions by Chaucer's pilgrims. It's a good illustration of the seven deadly sins, but I think it ties directly into who these characters are in seven. Now let's look at the Divine Comedy. So the Divine Comedy is kind of broken into three parts. We've got uh, the Inferno, we've got Purgatory, and Paradise, or Paradiso. And... Um, it's the story of the journey of uh, Dante Alighieri. He writes himself as the main character, and it shows him going through the different uh, layers of hell, then purgatory, and then ascending up to heaven. Um, and it was written, it, it was completed in 1320, uh, the year before his death. And, and what I think is so interesting about this is that uh, I think what, what uh, Andrew Kevin Walker and uh, David Fincher were actually doing is retelling the story of Dante's Inferno in a neo-noir setting. Wow. So, um, and specifically, uh, if, if you look at the characters, uh, Dante's, uh, Dante's Inferno, it's, it's starring Dante, um, who was, uh, he was also a politician, uh, who was um, he basically he got kind of fucked over by the Pope uh, and then he was exiled to the north. Uh, he was from Florence originally um, and was a, a, a powerful political player and then uh, was ended up exiled and then he wrote uh, the Divine Comedy as commentary, um, which is interesting. I, I always thought before that um, the... Um, when I was younger, I thought the Divine Comedy was kind of uh, Catholic propaganda to kind of scare the shit out of people, uh, get them to go to church. When the truth of it is, is it's actually a political allegory. Um, but at, at, at its heart, it shows um, Dante uh, meets up with Virgil, and Virgil kind of guides him as uh, to, they take a tour through the nine layers of hell. And... I believe that that's what Seven is actually doing. It's actually telling the story of Virgil and Dante in a neo-noir setting, uh, going through metaphorical layers of hell. Um, I think Mills represents Dante and Somerset represents Virgil. Virgil was the the ancient historian and poet, uh, wrote the Aeneid. He was a, um, and it, he was somebody that strongly inspired Dante. He was kind of uh, Dante's kind of spiritual mentor. Um, and that's why I think the, that's the real reason why they had Somerset in the library. They, they showed he's, he's extremely literary. And then on top of that, him saying that he's collecting pieces of evidence of, for, for the sake of history. Um, it, it's kind of like Virgil. It's also like Dante. They're not changing. They don't, in their lives, they're not changing uh, the systems of political justice or justice for, in any way. But they are collecting these pieces these artifacts in order to bring, give future generations some insight into how to organize ourselves. Um, 
And then Somerset, I think, actually plays a dual role. Not only does he represent Virgil, the poet and the historian, but he also is a representation of Chaucer. Now, Chaucer was an English poet and author, widely considered the greatest English poet of the Middle Ages. He's best known for the Canterbury Tales. Uh, He's been called the father of English literature or, or, or alternatively, the father of English poetry. Um, Now, the reason why I think he also represents uh, Somerset is because um, basically in 1390, Chaucer uh, got robbed and he was injured during the robbery. So in the in the process of him kind of being um, uh, he was uh, a caretaker um, and uh, responsible for for overseeing this this section of the forest after he was robbed, uh, he was uh, he was given a job as a deputy forester. Uh, in the per, uh, in the Petherton Park in North Petherton, which is in Somerset, Somerset, England. Um, so Somerset, it's interesting, you know, of all the of all the references for William Somerset, the detective, to be researching, he just happens to be researching Chaucer, which is, you know, uh, he's the product of Somerset, the the city. That was really confusing. <laughs> So basically, it's it's one more dimension that shows that um, uh, that William Somerset, the detective, Morgan Freeman's character, is a metaphor for both Virgil and Chaucer, in in the sense that they're cultured poets who are trying to make sense of hyper religiosity, um, and that's where we get the Parson's Tale from. And f- so, for those of you that, that think that this is maybe just kind of grasping at straws there's a few other little details that really uh one of the things i really like was looking for artifacts of the inferno in the movie now for example uh just before virgil and dante arrive at the one of the lowest levels of hell the darkest levels they're walking across this frozen lake and they see these heads um that are like these living people who are frozen in the lake and the heads are kind of uh, just, just above the surface so they can see their eyes and part of their nose. Now, as they're walking through it, they pass by these giants that were guarding the gates and then just past all these heads on the lake, they finally come to Satan and they see Satan upside down. Now in the, in their, in the story, uh, they've often referred to John Doe as the devil. Just like those, those people who are frozen in a state of suffering in that lake where their heads are just above the surface of the water. In a similar mode, we have that one guy who's being slowly starved to death. Over the course of a year, they're barely keeping him alive. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, they, the doctor even says, um, he, he's, you know, he's so fragile he could die if you just shine a flashlight in his eyes and he still has hell to look forward to. That's, that's Fincher and... Uh, Walker saying this is the allegory and one of the greatest little details is as they're walking into the building where they find this person who is basically frozen in a state of barely surviving of just suffering the 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 the, the pains of the condemned uh, we see then the name of the building is giant which is a direct reference mm. to the giants in the Inferno that served as the gatekeepers into that, that area with the frozen lake. And it's just one more great little detail that on the surface, you're not going to question it. But subtly, you're picking up on all these threads that kind of tie together <laughs> to be this complex, beautiful tapestry of an allegory 
about this political dynamic. It's not just spiritual. It's not about religion. This isn't about a story about religion. This is using religion to talk about political power dynamics and what the relationship between church and state. Um, and then on top of that, the, the, not only is this, uh, you know, Dante and Virgil in an odyssey through the nine layers of hell, um, excuse me, through the nine rings of hell, um, there, there's also this extra layer. So Dante Alighieri was married uh, through an arranged marriage, but he was in love. He fell in love with this uh, young woman named Beatrice. And in the story of, uh, of the Inferno or in, in the Divine Comedy, it was Beatrice who is hailed as this muse, as this, as this angel. It's interesting that you said angel. Like in, in the Divine Comedy, Beatrice is literally an angel who goes to Virgil and says, you need to help Dante through this rite of passage, through this, um, uh, through this crucible of hell, like literally of hell. And um, I think Tracy, uh, the character Tracy, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, is the prototype for Beatrice. Um, and, you know, it's just those little things of like uh, subtly referencing Beatrice, Tracy, it kind of taking a little bit of the aesthetic, but also she plays the role. We see the scene where Mills and Somerset in the, are in the office and Mills gets his first phone call. And then his wife says, let me talk to Somerset. And they have some sort of conversation and she invites him over for dinner. It's because of Tracy that Somerset connects with Mills for the first time and and then we actually get the story underway. Before that, Mills was kind of wandering through the forest, lost in a sea of all of these clues that weren't making sense to him. Now, in in um, in the Divine Comedy, in the Inferno, that's exactly what happens. Dante's lost in the woods. He sees some strange animals. And then Virgil appears to him as a spirit and says, I've been sent to help you. And then he starts to guide him through the different rings of hell. Um, and and he, he, we later learned that it was Beatrice that commissioned him, that sent him to guide Dante through these rings of hell. Um, so what's interesting is um, the Inferno isn't just, you know, it's not religious propaganda. It, it, it's often later referred to as religious propaganda because, you know, it, it's so graphic with the way it depicts hell. But the truth of it is, is that it, this was... Uh, this was Dante trying to respond to a volatile political ethos that was the Holy Roman Empire. Um, he was what was called a, a, a Guelph, uh, Guelph Bianchi, a, a white Guelph. Now, the black Guelphs were this uh, political group that supported the, the papacy, the Roman papacy. And they supported this thing called simony, which is where you could, it was kind of like sale of indulgences. You could pay the church uh, and then you would be forgiven of your sins. And um, and this was something that, that Dante was strongly against. What we were seeing was that the, the Roman influence was taking over all the principalities uh, through all of Florence and all the Italian principalities and then spreading across the entire uh, Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire. And the main thing that Dante was advocating was a separation between the religiosity and the governmental rule or what we would call a separation of church and state, because he was seeing that the, uh, that the religion, that the, the Pope was using nepotism, was using corruption, was using extortion as a means to rule the people. And they were, and they were using religion as a way to exploit them. 
So uh, once Dante, uh, he was he was uh, tried while he was out of Florence um, and then told that he was uh, going to be burnt at the stake if he returned to Florence. So he was exiled after that. And from that moment on, started spent the next 10 years writing the Divine Comedy. And from there, he started writing the popes and different religious leaders into the divine, into the inferno as a way of saying these people are in the darkest, hottest, most brutal parts of hell. And this was Dante's way of saying it's not just uh, trying to articulate Catholic belief um, or any kind of religious belief. He was trying to use kind of tribal narratives to emphasize how brutal and how corrupt these political leaders were and that they were using religion and faith as a pretext to to garner this kind of submission um so what i what i think is interesting is is uh it, it begs the question this was 1995 um if this story is if seven really is a modern retelling of dante's inferno in a neo-noir context what is Fincher? What is uh, Andrew Kevin Walker? What are they trying to say about the nature of the culture that they're in? Are, are they using this as an allegory? Now, if we look at 1995, this was um, Clinton had been president for about three years, which means 1995, September, was right before the elections. Um, and uh, so Clinton was going to be running again, um, and it would be his second term. And one thing that was going on at the time, a huge piece of the argument, uh, was this this rise of the Christian right or the religious right. And one of the things that were that a lot of people were um, arguing about is, you know, is this idea of like, well, should churches be able to talk, give sermons that are endorsing certain political leaders? Because that that breaks with the tradition of like you're supposed to lose your your certification of 501c3 if you if you are endorsing political leaders because then you become a political organization not just a religious organization. Um, so in you know in the 90s that was uh, you know I was a kid at the time so I was you know I was I've always been interested in politics but I was still pretty pretty ignorant some would say that I still am but. Um, but what we were seeing is this this argument, this kind of dialectic going on between what is the role of religion in politics. And I think seven is a powerful way of uh, invoking that same metaphor of the inferno as a political allegory. Uh, and the thing that Dante was advocating is we need to separate religiosity and the nepotism and the corruption of this kind of eternal power dynamic, separate that from the political um, the political dynamics that were that are ruling our lives and th- again this is also during the time where um, there there was a lot of religious fervor there's a lot of schisms going on lots of power dynamics and a lot of corruption within uh, both uh, churches as well as or within the church dynamic as well as the political dynamics um, popes and emperors were constantly changing seats um, which is something that's almost impo- well, something that's really difficult to imagine now. So w- when you look at it from this, the simple narrative of if Mills represents Dante and Somerset represents Virgil, then what they're saying ultimately uh, as an allegory is that um, Dante becomes a kind of 
tool of the state. And this one way to look at this is that, you know, this John Doe character represents this kind of radical um, religiosity that is trying to preach, is trying to punish people. And this could be seen as kind of like um, Fincher's way of, of articulating like the, the brutality and the, the, um, the extremism of religiosity is going to force the state to become the monsters, to become the tool of the monsters. And that's what I think is, is a fascinating conversation. It's, uh, I don't know if I totally agree with it, but it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating comment that Dante is the moral arbiter and therefore Mills is the wrath of God. And that's what John Doe tricked him into doing. Wow. Jeez. Um, so that's, that's, kind of my, <laughs> that's kind of my takeaway. That's, um, what do you think? Did I go down the rabbit hole? Did I go too far? Or, and again, I'm not saying I, I agree with, I believe, or anything. I think this is the conversation that Fincher and Walker are wanting to have with their audience. This is why they're making these references. What do you think? I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I really enjoy that presentation because I love the use of the mythology. You know, I, uh, who was it that uh, George Lucas was saying that the, um, the generation of the time will define the mythology of the time? And, you know, Fincher using film noir to... To have these discussions is very interesting. It's you know very, what? Sorry, can I interrupt you real quick? Um, that you just yeah. brought up a really good point. So when Dante was exiled, he deliberately started writing literature in Italian. Now at that time, they were only great literature was only written in Latin, and part of the reason was mm-hmm. was because the 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 average person was not educated enough to read in Latin. So it was part of the way to make sure that. The, that the educated people were um, were only the elites. It was kind of a way of controlling the narrative. And Alighieri was saying, no, I'm going to write this in conventional street language. The common Italian will be able to read this and be able to, it's going to scare the shit out of him. And also, he's going to have a more powerful impact on the average person. I think him writing in Italian is the same as Fincher and Walker telling Dante's Inferno a political allegory in a neo-noir the neo-noir is the language of entertainment it's the language of the common man absolutely it's also something we've been conditioned to kind of um accept without being terribly critical because Mm. it's a very dark it's it's a dark genre anyways i mean we have the we we have the different um you know for instance tracy being the um the femme atrope and the and the um, uh, kind of a, as a as a tool with within the film noir, um, we have little things like that that kind of throw back to what I love is also the fact that they never and and you know that this is an allegory because of this, but they never say ah New York City or yeah. ah Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, she loves me, but she's a bitter lover. You know what I mean? It's like it's it's always just you know it's just the city. You know they don't they don't make these uh, they don't kind of uh, uh, make these specifics because 
you need to be in almost a dreamlike state and it's and what they're saying right there is it's not important what's important is that it's a dark place it's a difficult place to live in it's a difficult place for this angel to come and uh you know basically clip her wings in order to to have her stay there once you kind of start peeling away these little layers um it becomes uh there's actually ab- actually what feels like a greater depth to them because it goes back 700 years to the story that they were telling 700 years ago yeah i just i love it and i yeah, it's, I, this, it's the so same impressed. conflict we're, we're still dealing with the same the same conflicts just using different terminology absolutely it's human nature. I mean, we're, that's that's where we don't really. I mean, <laughs> we're complex beings, but for some reason, we we're kind of stuck in that loop. <laughs> you know, there we we've been dealing with the same stuff for the last you know thousand years. I still want to believe. I actually think you know, yeah. I I want to believe that we are actually progressing toward more civilization. We are we're much better off than we were. Anyway, that's that's a digression. Um, let's let's jump into shut your plot hole, shall we? Shut your plot hole. Uh, now, shut your plot hole is where we transition from analysis, uh, trying to understand what the the filmmakers, the the screenwriter, and the directors were going for, um, and kind of transitioning into uh, criticism, a critical side. And criticism just means to draw into crisis. It's it's where you take something and try and evaluate. Uh, are there weaknesses? How could this be stronger? Now, we are engaging great art. We, you know, Seven is a powerful, incredibly visceral, effective movie. It's why years later, it's still many people's favorite movie. Um, and it's really well done. Um, that said, I, you know, as filmmakers, we don't, as writers, we don't want to just accept it as great. Uh, we want to ask ourselves, like critically evaluate it and ask uh, what could we learn from this? And are there things that are weaknesses? Are there plot holes? Um, and just do our best effort. Uh, when I was at CalArts, uh, Mark Andrews, uh, one of the screenwriters for John Carter, one of the uh, Pixar greats, fantastic director, just brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, he gave this lecture when he was talking about like learning from good movies and bad movies. He said, when you watch a movie that just doesn't work, like it's it's easy to dismiss it and just say like well it's just a piece of shit. If any movie gets done, any movie, and I mean like any movie is accomplished, it's a miracle. Um, and if it's successful, it's even that much more of a miracle. So, as artists, as filmmakers, uh, what he recommended was when you watch a movie and it's not working for you, don't just dismiss it. Take the time to evaluate what doesn't work. And see what you would do differently. If you were handed that script today, how would you give it a rewrite that would plus it? Um, which is dangerous territory. It's a really, it's, it's, it's very easy to get into the weeds. And then you start to see, you know, that's why development hell is called development hell. It's the inferno of creativity. Uh, you, it's very easy to get lost uh, when you start imposing your themes on somebody else's story. So you got to put the effort in to try and identify their themes. Anyway, so that's what Shut Your Plot Hole is. It's an earnest attempt to actually look critically at great work. Um, now, uh, I, I came up with just a few... Um, I don't know so much if they are plot holes as much as they are just kind of general criticism. This is a great movie. It, 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 follows, uh, it follows a very unconventional structure. Um, 
and yet you're emotionally engaged the whole way through. And a lot of that is because of the, the incredible atmospherics, the incredible performances, the way it's shot is so beautiful. Um, but my, my first, the first thing I want to talk about is basically, uh, like we were talking about, how one beat after another, it's kind of monotone. We don't have much of an emotional story. The best, the closest thing we have to an emotional story is when Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, when Tracy, her, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, approaches Somerset and says, I'm pregnant, but I don't know if I want to keep it. I don't want to raise a baby in this world, this world, hell, inferno. And that's probably like the closest we have to just kind of a, a drop, this kind of emotional drop. Um, but Somerset is kind of a malaise, like he just has this kind of somber melancholy. Um, and because of that, every single scene, there's not a huge emotional arc. We're Now, now part of the tradition of noir um, and a lot, of the, a lot of the old kind of hard-boiled stories are characters who kind of kept everything inside. You know, it was it was part of that old World War II ethic of just you know you, you got to get through shit and you got to just deal with it um, and you kind of handle it and that's that's why you have a lot of these stories that are all about you know being cool under pressure. You got Humphrey Bogart who is fucking cool as hell and barely he always just kind of cracks a grin at the face of death. Um, so there's there's a part of that is honoring the tropes of the genre that they're working with. Um, but I do think that there are ways that you could actually have powerful emotional ups and downs and still honor that um, that noir trope. Um, I mean, No Country for Old Men is a really great example of having that emotional up and down. Llewellyn Moss and Ed Tom Bell True. and even Anton Chigurh has some really intense highs, ups and downs, or intense highs and intense mm-hmm. lows. Um, so that that's something that I, I, if I were to be given a, a version of this, um, and told to rewrite it, I would. The first thing I would identify is it has kind of a flat emotional line until the very end. It just drops off the cliff. Now, part of that maybe contributes the fact that it is kind of a flat emotional line until the end, where it drops off the cliff. Is like it is it is the effect that they want to get. You, you got something? Well, you know, it just reminded me of. Uh Butch Cassie and the Sundance Kid, you know, the scene where they're riding around in the in the bicycle. It's like, I just throw in like a, you know, raindrops keep falling on my head scene, you know? It's like, just have Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow and, and, and uh, Morgan Freeman. They're just like, you know, raindrops keep falling on my... You know, it's... Uh, I'm not going to pay for the I copyright. I really want to see that... I okay. Uh, here we gotta go. Da da da. Anyway, yeah. um, but no. Uh, yeah, no. I just think uh, I, I just was imagining what we would do to lighten the mood on this, and it just just got worse and worse in my That's head. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> um, okay. Another criticism I have is um, now with film noir. What we're seeing is a lot of on-the-nose discussion about philosophy. This is definitely a progenitor for True Detective. Um, and part of as oh, I yeah, love the first season of True Detective. Absolutely loved it. Absolutely. That yeah. said, part of my criticism for that was there were lots of scenes where it's Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey expositing their philosophical worldviews. 
yeah. where it's like and these are these are police officers these are hardcore detectives and they're sitting there talking about you know uh, like just fatalism and all this like um, the futility of the soul and meat puppets and it's uh, the, the whole time I'm like I, I just don't I, I don't see you know like they, they really went over the top with uh, Morgan Freeman's character Somerset where they just keep on saying, oh, you know, we're so sick of you asking all these questions, Mr. Culture over there. And then like, hey, we got culture, boombox, click, pocketable cannon. It's like, uh, it's, it's just a little, it's just a little too like, I, I get it because writers want to, writers have great ideas and they want to talk about philosophy and they also want to be hard boiled. The trick is, is to have it motivated and you know, you're literally having character. Hey, you're having scenes. That's why you didn't have to do any detective work when we're identifying the unconscious drive, because you literally have Morgan Freeman saying, I don't believe we're doing any good here. Like this is, you know, we're just collecting, we're just collecting artifacts for the dead, you know? And then, uh, you have Brad Pitt saying, well, I, I don't agree with you because I'm, you know, I believe we're actually doing something. We're actually changing the world. This is justice. And it's like, it's, it's a little like uh pageanty, a little telegraphing. Yeah, and then one one of my last plot yeah. holes, and this is I I think it's a legit plot hole that it's like it, it this is clearly uh, how did Somerset know the killer was going for seven sins and not the rings of hell because gluttony and greed they're also mm-hmm. the the suffering of the damned souls so if this is some sort of attrition or something like that. He knows that it, the theme is that there's the killer's got a theme. How did he know it was seven sins and not the nine? How did he know that it wasn't going to be seven more deaths, each one representing the different layers of hell and condemnation? He went straight to, mm. there's going to be five more, seven sins. That's the theme. Put the movie title up. <laughs> is that a plot hole or am I just being too critical? I don't know if it's a plot hole necessarily. I mean, it's 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 a... I don't disagree with you, but however, as far as as uh, like commonly known tropes, the seven deadly sins is much more uh, commonly understood than say the rings of hell. Yeah, uh, the, the rings of hell are probably a little bit more obscure than you know because everybody knows the seven deadly sins. We learn them in I don't know. Sunday school or, or whatever, uh, but or catechism, but no, I I, uh, I I don't think it's such a terrible thing that he would assume that it was seven deadly sins, and it's like if he were to say, oh, there's gonna be five more, and then and then there's oh sorry there's eleven more, you know it's like well, see if it, yeah. if it was up to me I would have said there's gonna be at least five more, maybe seven. Okay. <laughs> Sure, but it's like it's ah. almost like the the it's like that you know he read the screenplay and he knew there were going to be seven, you know, right? Well, that says it right on the title page. <laughs> exactly. There's going to be seven more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so other than that, and then there's the question. So and then this is probably my my biggest question about the character arc is Somerset starts off saying, I feel like we're not doing any good here. I've lost faith, right? 
and he's lost mm-hmm. faith in his job and he's lost faith that he's actually making a difference. And then he meets this kid who's uh, rambunctious and wants to prove something and he believes in the system and he's got this sweet, wonderful wife and he's like, I want to believe again. And then she gets her head cut off and he murders and is going to go away forever. How does that get Somerset to say, you know what, I'm going to stick around? How is that the thing that says, you know what, we are doing some good here. Why? Now, let me point out that uh, in in the Inferno, uh, Virgil uh, is in Limbo. Uh, now, Limbo is a part, it's, it's the first ring of hell. And all the philosophers, all the people who are basically good people that did great things in history but did not accept the, the gospel of Jesus or the salvation of Jesus Christ, they're going to be stuck in limbo, which means they're not really suffering. They're just kind of hanging out in the rocks talking philosophy. And hmm. Virgil, once he gets him, once he gets Dante through the nine layers of hell, ends up having to return to limbo with all the other great philosophers. So in the allegorical sense, Somerset saying, I'm going to be around, makes sense allegorically. But, our, but as far as the character arc, why the fuck would he stay around? How, how does that change the way he sees uh, the world? If anything, he would be even more embittered. Even more, like Literally, this sweet young couple gets their lives wrecked. And then on top of that, he didn't actually kill the killer or he didn't catch the killer. The killer gave himself up. All of his detective work, the only good detective work he did was under the was by breaking the law. So now he's he's a corrupt cop who's exploiting a, you know, and, and I love the idea that, you know, like uh, we're going to be watching the libraries for really dangerous serial killers. <laughs> like it's it's <laughs> It's kind of like, oh my God, we've got a matter, we've got a slaughterhouse. We don't know who did it. Quick, go to the library. <laughs> go to the libraries. Quick, Robin. <laughs> Quick, Robin, to, to the, the library. library. We'll find the penguin there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Robin's running the opposite direction. He's oh, oh the library. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to the Batmobile, right? No, the library. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. Anyway, uh, so yeah, do you have a good answer for that? Why why would Somerset no. say I'm going to stick around after that? No, to be honest, it, it, other than the fa- the fact that it kind of puts a button on the end of the story, it's like uh, I was going to leave and now I, I'm I not. I was going to leave and now I'm not going to do it, guys. You want to? I don't know. The truth is, I don't. I don't have an answer for that because. Um, you know, if I experience just that final scene, mm-hmm. I, I'm heading to Bermuda. I'm I'm going to the Bahamas. Right. I am never looking at. Poli- I'm I'm never. I'm not going to even keep my police badge as a memento. I am out of there. Yeah. So I have no idea. So you know, I I can't I can't defend his choices that don't seem terribly rational to me. Yeah. Okay. That said, I love the movie. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. It's so beautifully shot. It's uh, Fincher is amazing at put you putting you in the moment, making you feel the horror, the dread, the disgust. Um, yeah, it's it's just a great movie. It's a great yeah. movie. This this is one of the movies that um, I, there, there's there's a few movies that I have a really difficult time experiencing, and this is one of those films. The, the difficulty 
because it is a visceral experience. It really is a visceral experience. And and going through these painful, difficult, um, literally trudging through hell, um, it's one of those movies that, yes, I can, I can acknowledge its artistry, its craft, it's beautiful, it's beautifully written, it's beautifully shot, it's beautifully acted. Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman are are you know at the top of their game on all pistons but my it's so painful for me to watch that that literally if i didn't have to do this podcast i probably wouldn't watch that movie again i mean that's just the reality i mean there's a few i mean hotel rwanda is another one of those films where it's like oh i don't and sophie's choice you know it's like these movies that are just they just rip your heart out and then give you the finger afterwards because it's like, yeah. yeah, this happened and now you experienced it too. And it's like, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But no, you know, it is an incredible film and definitely a movie I, I probably never watch again. <laughs> that's the perfect button. Yeah. We'll, we'll end it right here. Yeah, there you go. All right, that's that's our vivid section for seven. David Fincher, Andrew Kevin Walker, amazing pairing, amazing team. You've got a story inside you, a screenplay no one has ever thought of, a novel you've been rolling around inside your coconut for years. Maybe you wrote a few pages and stalled out. Maybe you even wrote a whole draft but don't feel confident it's any good. Or maybe you've been writing draft after draft after draft and slamming into writer's blocks or dead ends or wandering into the weeds. Maybe you just have a few scenes centered around some dope high concept, but you don't know how to develop a character, much less construct a plot that would generate a character arc. Maybe all you have is some simmering spark of an idea. Just a simple desire to write a story this book is for you story by numbers is a step-by-step process it gives you the tools to construct a plot that fleshes out your story with characters so real so compelling so multi-dimensional you begin to wonder if you're possessed story by numbers is composed of three parts Part 1 gives you an overview of the 4-act structure, 24 plot points, 8 sequences. Part 2 is a 35-question examination of your story that will guide you through developing and outlining your novel or screenplay into the 4-act template. Part 3, well, that's just next-level dope shit. This isn't just another book on theory. Story by Numbers is a diagnostic toolkit for developing and fine-tuning your story. You'll also want to pick up the Story by Numbers workbook. For each story you're writing, you'll need a journal to organize your ideas. The Story by Numbers workbook is a companion notebook that walks you through the process as you outline your story and guide you through each phase of development. From constructing your protagonist's internal drive to plotting conflicts that expose character to composing scenes that drive compelling stories. By the time you've completed your story by number workbook, you'll be ready to finish your manuscript. Whenever you ask a writer what it takes to write a good story, they usually say there are no rules. If you want to know what they really think, ask them about a novel or movie they hate. Immediately, they'll unload a litany of do's and don'ts so specific, so precise, you'd think they're citing commandments. We all know following a formula is what turns stories into zombified, hacky imitations of better stories. You don't want a formula. You want a process. A method composed of practical principles that breathe life into your concept. You don't want some bullshit magical key. You just want to know what works and what doesn't. Does your story resonate? 
or not. Everyone knows there are no rules for writing a great story. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, here are the rules. Story by numbers. Write more, better, faster, doper.